Welcome everybody to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, um, the only podcast where we take some cocktails and some wildlife nerds and some cake and we kind Cheers. of mash it all together and we see what happens. Um, it's been a hectic week, guys. Um, man, I'm still recovering from surgery, believe it or not. I haven't drank this much coffee in like <laughs> seven months and we're having espresso martinis and cheesecake. This could be interesting. Yeah, I may die. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be well, fine. Thank you so much, by the way, to Brenton Wong from Vaguely Human and Yasmin Zeleni uh, from Southwest Snake Removals for coming on last week. Um, oh, man, it was so much fun talking to those cats. They were fucking phenomenal. But uh, we have, to my left, uh, we have Hamish Nola from That Reptile Guy to talk to us about reptile keeping, reptile breeding, snake mm -hmm. breeding in particular. And to join yep. us once again, we have Lisa Owen from Scales Wildlife. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Thanks yeah. for having me back. Yeah, what have you been up to? Working on my master's. Working on yeah. my master's. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So not doing so much more field work? Uh, not at the moment. Yeah. Having a bit of break from that so I can get my uni done. So, yeah, cool. yeah. And the master's is in? Wildlife biology. Wildlife yes. biology. Straight up. Yep. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> and Hamish, it's been happening, man. You've been camping? I have been camping. Yeah, we're talking about this. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, spontaneous camping trips always the way. Nice always. one. Yeah. And it was for a mate's birthday to yeah. border rangers. Yeah, Border Rangers National Park down in New South Wales. So, Where, Whereabouts is that for our listeners who don't know? So it's about two and a half hours south of Brisbane-ish, and I think it's about 50 minutes inland, cool. a little bit south. It's a bit further south than the Gold Coast. Cool. Um, yeah, up in the mountains up there. Really nice. nice. Yeah, cool. And did you guys, uh, what, did you guys just go out there to party and get drunk in the bush, or were you herping, or what was the deal? No, so a bit of a herping, range. by the way, um, just uh, we'll explain that bit of terminology. Whoa, whoa. It does catch people, yes. <laughs> um, when uh, we say herping, um, it, it is, you know, uh, you know, uh, a activity where you go into the wild mm -hmm. looking for reptiles and amphibians, herpetofauna. Um, we do like to say we're, you know, running around with our friends in the bush catching herps. <laughs> Um, it sounds bad. It, it does, does. It's but it bad. is just looking for reptiles, so don't get excited. Um, and go herping. <laughs> oh, either either one's fine. But you know, be safe. Fun. Yeah, be, to be safe don't herping in touch them, yeah. but feel free to look. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Hang on, wait. Is like the other one, the non-reptile one, is that herping if you're being safe, or is that just you know, a <laughs> Well, you can't I'm not it. sure if you can call it herping I if you're practicing it safely. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, no more alcohol. No, no. Um, so, um, cold out there still? Or? It is still very cold down there. Yeah. Surprisingly cold. I crossed the Queensland border and I think it jumped up by about 20 degrees. Um, it was zero degrees at 6 a.m. this morning. Oh, God. Oh, that's so, right. You came back today. Yeah, I was. I woke up in the bush this morning nice and one. drove back up here. Freezing cold, start a fire, well, get warm. Yeah, we had a good fire last night, yeah, but cool. I love the cold, so I was happy. Yeah, right. I was very happy. I'm originally, um, well, I was born in Germany. My parents are from Finland, mm -hmm. and then we moved to Melbourne for my first uh, 12, uh, 10 years in Australia until I was around 12, and we moved to Noosa. So it's been like cold, 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 and then it's tropical. So I, yeah, I'm done with the cold. I like reptiles. They hang out in warm places, and I'm gonna hang out there with them. That cold, yeah, I don't know, man. After a while, it just gets in your bones. I like it. Yeah, I like snowboarding. I'm a big fan of snowboarding and skiing and stuff. Yeah, that's right. You get in, and then you come home. Yeah, and you don't stay there. Yeah, and now you're back here, and what you're you're doing the... Are you doing, still doing the run tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, doing the British Brisbane tomorrow morning. Holy crap. So that's going to be good fun. It's pretty chill. Like, it sounds 
more extreme than it is. Well, okay, again, I've sure. had surgery recently, so and yeah. I've been recovering. I lost 18 kilos of muscle mass, so the idea of doing a marathon... Maybe don't do a 10k run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. Uh, probably in my fittest, I would have started to do a 10k yeah. run. So no. the, the cake and the cocktails is in your... Yeah, this is prep. Regime. This is my prep <laughs> for the 10k run yeah. tomorrow. Uh, you um, might, yeah. Just... Don't, don't go to sleep. Just keep drinking. Yeah, I no, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, if you're drinking these goddamn caffeine things, <laughs> caffeine and vodka, you will survive anything. You'll be able to drag a fridge up Mount Everest with all these things. That's tomorrow morning. I've got a, um, got a mate coming over tomorrow as well. Oh, yeah? He's been driving up to Cape York for the last two months. Holy crap. And he's just got back, and he's going to have some pretty wild stories. Oh, yeah? What's he been doing he just went full driving and road tripping up there with a mate. Cool. Um, Herping, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. I'm annoyed at him. He because actually, yeah. he, yeah, no, he, he found his first um, wild blackhead. Oh. So I'm jealous. And it was, I, I, he's, he's going to show me all the photos, give me all the details tomorrow. Yeah. He said it was much further south than he expected to find oh, one. Interesting. Which was, yeah, interesting. Yeah, cool. I mean, still within their expected range. Still within their expected range. It wasn't unusual, but it was quite quite south. So it'll be interesting to hear more about that. They are like... I've I've worked in in the field a few times in like the area where you're going to get blackheads. Mm. Never found... It's my unicorn. That's it's my it. unicorn. You still up, one. No, no, absolutely. And all the, you know, fauna spotting and all the eco- ecological stuff. Really? Still have not seen a blackhead. I, there was one day where um, I got switched from one fauna spotting site to another. And the day they switched me off that site, um, they find like a two meter blackheaded <laughs> python. Do you remember that? Of course. Lisa? Yeah. Where, where, you was that out west, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was, I think Nick and everybody, a bunch of our friends mm. who, who we were working with at the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I've, I've been so amped to find one, and then the day that I get moved to a different site, that's like there it's a is. giant, beautiful oh, black-headed python, man. and they took like one photo. I've been west, I've been north, <laughs> I've been all the way to Darwin, still haven't found one yet, and yeah, that's man. why I'm so annoyed, because <laughs> it's just not fair. I've tried, I've worked hard, I've yeah, put in some the people hours. Have luck, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can put in the hours, but... Oh, it just dude. doesn't happen. Yeah, it just doesn't happen for you. i a couple in Gladstone. Yeah. Yeah. A couple. Yeah. 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 See? Another one who's just... Go away. She's like falling over them. Yeah. Oh, my God. But, yeah, there was another site out there where I was working with Lisa, and, like, I'd been out there for ages hoping to see a mulga. Didn't get to see one on that trip. I found one. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, I mean, I've, I've been out there since, but... I was hoping to get one that trip, went not getting any, and then I think I left, and then a couple of days later, like, they had to go catch one. Mm. And there's a big mulga crossing, like, um, a big clearing in front of me. And Lisa just, apparently, from what I hear, you put the bag down and it's like... Dove in. Yeah, it dove in, like, did, took a good one and a half metre leap through the air. Straight into <laughs> the snake the bag. It basically caught itself. Yeah. It made me look like I was really good at catching yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a win-win. Perfect yeah. situation. Nice one. Nice mm. one. Yeah, it's good. Oh, man. Well, look, um, I guess we're looking forward to uh, hearing what stories he has coming from up north. Mm. Yeah. Cool man. Um, and, um, the cake. It's amazing. Yeah. Man. Okay. Um, I will. We don't. We don't. Last time we were dumping the cake into the icing. <laughs> I saw that. Where's my I bowl saw of that. icing this time? Hmm? So where's my bowl of icing? I got some whipped cream in it. It's a cheesecake. Yeah, but still. <laughs> <laughs> no man. Uh, let's get started. I guess. Um, Hamish, man, how did you get into? When did you uh, get into wildlife? When did you get into reptile keeping in particular? Because that's what we're mostly here to talk about in the end. Yeah. So wildlife in general. Wasn't a choice. Ever since I was a little kid, obsessed, running around fanatically, yep. chasing butterflies and birds and whatever else I could, <laughs> I could find. Just yeah. 
trying to find cool stuff, bushwalking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess that it kind of progressed into, um, obviously in Australia and southeast Queensland particularly, we have a lot of snakes here. Absolutely. They're yeah. everywhere. Um, so you grew up here in, in southeast Queensland? Yeah, yeah, grew up here in Ashgrove, same house that I'm living at now. Um, and yeah, we're right on the bush, basically... Right next to Mount Kutha. Yeah, beautiful. We get a lot of carbon pipe, yeah, yeah, tree snakes. You guys have a beautiful place out there. Been yellow face whip snakes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so my neighbours and our family were always getting them in the houses. And, yeah, it just kind of started from there. I would run down and pick them up for people. And I don't know, I guess just other people being scared of them. Got you interested Got in me them. interested yeah. in them because like, why are people so afraid of this thing? Because I'm yeah. so fascinated. Yeah, right. And then, yeah, I think I was eight years old when I finally convinced mum and dad to get a license for me. Um, or they got the license under their name so that I could yeah, get right. a snake. I don't cool. think there's a lot of parents that would let their eight year olds have snakes. It was not yeah. easy. Yeah. And they weren't happy about it. That's a, that's a struggle. <laughs> See, like, I, you know, coming from Finland, first of all, um, my dad had kind of grown up here. My dad moved here when he was young um, and then moved back to Finland, you know. Met my mom, had had you know, mm. me and my brother while they were living in Germany, and then moved over here. So my dad was, you know, he, he knew a little bit and he uh, about the area where you know down in Victoria mm. where he yeah, grew up. Sure. So we did a bit of camping and stuff down there, but um, you know, keeping reptiles in the house. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I got I got blue tongue lizards when I was six, and That's I was stoked, man. I was so happy. I had these two blue tongue lizards. They were um, the southern blotch blue tongues. Uh, yeah, nice. Of the which we don't get up here, a beautiful little blotched form down there with a little coppery head. Mm. Love those little things. They're a lot darker. Yeah. I, I guess it's probably, you know, pick up, you know, absorb heat a little bit better when they're doing that. More yeah, that southern trait. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so I had two of these things that they were absolutely awesome. I had one for, you know, one of them made it to, uh, I think, 15 years old. Wow. 15, 16. Yeah, so nice. I still had it when I was in undergrad uni, you know, up here. Mm. And that's um, really cool. Yeah. When someone keeps a reptile for that long. Yeah, man. I mean, so many people just sort of buy and sell and swap. And then try, yeah, dump them. Keeping and stuff. the same reptile from, you know. That's well, that's it. It's really like cool. any other pet. It's a it's a real commitment. Mm. You got to know how long they live for. Some snake, you know, carpet pythons might make it over twenty years. Some of the time. Yeah, you know? I, so I you know someone to... who had an olive that uh, made it to thirty one years old. So there you go. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's amazing. So, look, I wanted to get a snake as soon as I got these carpet pythons, and, like, fuck no. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's no. not <laughs> so, I, you know, then I got to, you know, I was keeping uh, you know, blue tongues, and I was always, you know, out herping and looking for wildlife with friends and this, this kind of stuff, getting involved with whatever I could. You know, in high school, we, um, for a woodwork class, we built a terrarium, yeah, cool. put it into the, you know, biology room, and got hooked up with a local vet. One of their kids was uh, in the school there, so you know we started this little program where we were, like rehabbing carpet pythons and little blue tongues. Yeah, nice. It was really cool. Um, but still, at home, uh-uh, it's not happening. Not at home. Find out. Oh wait, you have to be 16 to get your own reptile license. I'm like, I'm nearly 16. I'm like, yeah, 14, 15. I find this stuff out. I'm like, mom, I can get my own reptile license. Yeah. Can I have one in the house then? And apparently, it doesn't matter. Like it's still in the house. <laughs> still in the answer was still fuck no. It's not yeah, happening. No, 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 no. Not until you move out. <laughs> so. That's really cool of your parents, man. And look, it was really cool of my parents, to be honest. Yeah. For, you know, to, for anybody's parents to let them keep something that they are personally a little bit, I guess, anxious about, but to yeah. let their kids get that experience and, and follow their own interest in it is, I think, really, really cool. And so I, especially know, because, I mean, a lot of people are used to the reptile industry now. Yeah. It's huge. It's blown yeah. up like crazy in the last sort of five years or so. Yeah. 
when I was eight, that was, what, 17 years ago. Yeah, right. There wasn't much of a reptile industry and back then. Like, and it, not it existed. A whole lot of guidance as well. You it know? existed, like, yeah. but the, the internet wasn't the same. Facebook wasn't yeah. around. Yeah. Like, all these ways that people who learn and buy and, and sell and everything and stuff, yeah. just wasn't there back then. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was only a little kid, so I was just reading books and yeah, yeah, learning yeah. from wherever I could. And that's, I mean, and that's exactly where that, we all start, yeah. That's yes. probably been the biggest change that I've seen yeah. since I started. Is yeah. It's the number one industry is growing, but the yeah. way that we get information is just completely different to back then. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so, I remember I mean, we, we were, you know, hiring books from the library. And stuff, yeah. You know, that, uh, exactly. To figure out, you know, before we're going to buy these, these things, we're figuring out how to do it and you had to go down to the library and like have yeah. a library card and go yeah. into the actual physical place shops you know, to buy books not my parents yeah. had to like hold my hand and walk me into a, like a library and we go there and we you know either rent out a book or go there and read yeah. stuff and take down notes you know it and you know you know i complained about not being able to get a snake but honestly my parents were so cool and you know yeah. thank you so much to them for them of course yeah. it's 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 what led me down the path where i am now so that's it yeah very cool, man. So, and so you started with... Um, Murray-Darling Carpets. Murray-Darling Carpets. Yeah, so cool. I started with Murray-Darling Carpets. Um, um, yeah, tell, tell the people about the Murray-Darling Carpet. So Murray-Darling Carpet... Um, is that Imbricata? Yes. yes. Uh, it's one of the carpet pythons. Not a huge, huge thing. Get a bit smaller. Um, yeah, really nice. There's some absolutely beautiful forms of it. Um, and obviously so, with the name Murray-Darling... Yeah, the locality is in the sort of Murray-Darling Basin, a little yeah. bit further south than the uh, south and uh, west than uh, sort of coastals. And, yeah, exactly. uh, even even the diamonds, and they get uh, the coloration is quite different to the coastals. Mm. So it's the coastals much more your your browns. Um, these ones are more of your greys. Yeah, um, and then you can get some that are spectacular, with like orange flecking yeah. all through them. Really, really beautiful snakes. Yeah, um, but that were good for me because they're a little bit smaller than some of your more common ones around yeah, here. Yeah, like a big coastal carpet. Yeah, I mean, some I mean, of the coasters, they're big, chunky snakes yeah. and blackheads, things like that. Like, yeah, blackheads, olives, all that was sort of off the question when mum and dad found out they get to, you know, two and a half plus metres. Yeah, they <laughs> um, yeah, said, no, we're not putting up with that. Did you tell them to the It's yeah, just well, a big noodle. Well, fine. yeah, they weren't having a bite of that. Yeah, <laughs> that wasn't yeah, going to happen. Yeah, no, um, it's understood. So I had them for quite a while, and then, um, yeah, it's I had a little bit. There was a little bit of time off there, um, going through sort of high school and stuff, where we didn't have anything, and then um, basically spent a lot of time more with the wild ones, um, doing that kind of stuff, uh, and then, yeah, the the bug hit again pretty quick, yeah. and yeah, cool, yeah, life got in the way for a little while there, and then came straight back, and now. I don't know. Back into it full time, well, pretty much. Or? Go back six months or so when I had a lot of hatchlings. There's fifty plus snakes in the house. Wow. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's a lot it, of feeding. That's a lot of tub cleaning. That's a, it, that's yeah. a lot of money spent on um, F10, F10 uh, disinfectants. It's it's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you yeah. sort of. That's the thing with having a collection like that. You sort of have to go through periods of what you can and can't handle at the time. And whether or not you've got hatchlings or adults or whatever else is going on. F10, I'm guessing hygiene is one of the major things when yeah. you have that many animals, particularly juvies, which are, you know, when snakes are little, they they might not eat as much, but they're eating more frequently, they're growing, they are, and yeah. they are shitting. And especially when you are in contact with wild ones, yeah, you, you yeah. have to be careful. Like, yeah. most people probably don't put a lot of effort in, and they... Keep your ethanol wash on your hands, keep your yeah. ethanol handy. And they, most people will probably get away with it, to be yeah. honest, but... If you don't, yeah. and something bad happens, it's on you. Yeah. So yeah, you really so look, have to be it's careful. even to the point of like 
when you have that many babies, I'm guessing you're doing like F10 foot bath at the entry to the thing just to dip in. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, sort shoe of, bath. I have um, sort of different snakes in different areas okay. of the house so that, you know, that's sort of a way keep that them I can keep them separately. separate yeah. so the hatchlings are away from everything else. Um, and obviously anything wild is yeah, you far away well. from yeah. the captives because you just never know what you might be bringing in. That's very smart. Um, yeah. And especially when, you know, who knows what could be out there. I mean, there could be illnesses that we don't even know about yet. Well, I mean, there's and I don't still... want to be the first one to get it. So. And we have, we, uh, from what I understand, and this is a, an issue for, you know, python keepers, there's a disease out there called uh, sunshine virus. Mm. That, um, and I think we're still unsure about the method of transmission. Is that correct? I I don't personally know. Yeah. I think there might be some people who know more than most about it, but yeah. I think at this stage it's still quite a um, mystery disease. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it can it can wipe out collections from what I hear. Mm -hmm. And it has, yeah. yeah. Some people have some pretty bad issues with that. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, like, once, once you've got it, how do you know when it's truly gone? Maybe it's dormant, maybe, I mean, who knows? It's, it's a pretty scary thing yeah. to have. So you basically got to isolate everything you have there or, you know, like give up and burn down the house. Yeah. And yeah. I know some breeders are doing testing for it. So yeah. it can be tested for. Yeah. Um, and obviously if you do have a big collection or you're selling to the public, that's a good thing to do. And oh, absolutely. Uh, like, I mean, highly. the speed at which a uh, snake breeder's um, like seller reputation goes down in the hobby, in the reptile yeah. hobby, is very, very quick. Well, even, even just the risk of the thought, the possibility yeah. that... It might be there is enough to mean that you won't sell a snake again. I mean, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so it should be. Like it, it, it's a very serious thing. If if I don't want anyone's reputation to be tarnished, but you know, if things do go wrong, it. I mean, imagine if that's getting into some of the wild populations. Imagine if that's mm. yeah. a snake that gets sent over Overseas to another state. So that's, then, that's um, from. I understand that's why you can't import from uh, Queensland. Into WA is that right? Mm, I believe is so. Is that mostly for sunshine? Yeah, WA and anywhere into WA into and WA. Tasmania yeah. as well. For a Tasmania lot of as well, I think. For pythons, for pythons yeah, okay. yeah. Good on them, I say. Like, I mean, yeah. until they figure out the method of transmission for that virus, um, yeah, why not? I mean, you mm. can get pythons from with like within your state. Yeah, yeah. and if you want to, and if you want an interstate python that bad, and you have the money for it, move into state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's one of those things yeah. where you know I would I would love to keep exotics. I would love yeah, to keep lots of stuff, yeah, but absolutely. we just can't. It's yeah. just not absolutely. Yeah. I it's mean, just not know, safe. And, like there was was it a was it a boa or like a, a small ball python that was at the Gold Coast? Red tail boa. Red tail oh, boa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the one. Yeah, the police found yeah, thought yeah. it was a carpet. I've, um, I've I've been called out to pick up a a water python. Mm. You know, I've been we've called. Yeah, out, I did a water python. You've done a water python as well. There is um, you know, there is people's um escaped pets that get out and um, those, that are natives for those who don't know water pythons are from the Northern Territory yeah that's right if you find one in Queensland yeah Brisbane well, in South East Queensland South East Queensland it's probably yeah. not meant to be there yeah here in Brisbane that being said um, there's been a few that have been found in the Pine Rivers area mm, you know, okay. it's been it's happened apparently on a couple of occasions so either somebody's dumping them out there or there's, you know, there's the, a you know, the jumping on trucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, people are travelling interstate now as well. You know, I think yeah. that can be a big issue with caravans and trucks. Well, yeah, and I've, I've, I've mm. caught, um, you know, I've caught snakes from caravans. I've, you mm. know, I've been called to pull frogs and, cars, and all kinds yeah. of birds and things like that. Nothing um, that was. Um, not local and endemic, mm -hmm. but I could, you know, it wouldn't be hard for like a little, you know, something, something, a little death adder, or, you know, maybe a little like spotted black snake from somebody who's out camping somewhere west, sure. crawl up underneath yeah, the trailer exactly. and accidentally hitch a ride in. And that's yeah. the thing, most people, they, you know, over winter, they may not be traveling much, they 
Park the caravan near the garden. Yeah. Snake says, oh, that's a nice habitat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sits in there. A couple of months go by and then somebody takes off. Yeah. And they're taking that snake with them. Well, that was one of our relocation jobs, I think, earlier this week. But mm. um, a family and they were, you know, after winter, they're getting their caravan ready for springtime. Oh, actually, yeah. yeah. I had one about, yeah, just over a week ago. Yeah. yeah. As soon as you start moving those things, those big things that haven't been moved for a while. Yep. Yeah. They, they've found a nice place to hide. That's where they want to be. <laughs> Somewhere nice so, and warm. Yeah. If you haven't touched your cabin in a while, maybe... Check it. Yeah, yeah. check that. I mean, <laughs> check that first. <laughs> anytime you're checking something outside, you know, that's been sitting there for a while, yeah. it's always kind of uh, good to check it out mm. a little bit uh, bit cautiously, I guess. Yeah. So um, you um, got into doing some demo work there for a while as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so I've, I've sort of um, been involved in a few different little projects here and there. Um, bit of volunteering, bit of paid work. Um, so... A little bit of uh, education yep. with kids, so doing wildlife shows. So that's not just reptiles, but um, all different kinds of that wildlife. must be awesome fun. I, I've it only is. been able to help out on a few of those kind of things, handling. Mm. Like, I've got my blue card and everything, but yeah. I don't have my demonstrator's permit, so I've only been able to help other demonstrators, yeah, you know, exactly. carry things in. And then, mm. yeah. you know, I haven't um, actually been able to be the demonstrator, but, man, goddamn, that looks like a lot of fun. I love it, and especially working with, working with kids. Yeah, They're so impressionable. They up so much around wildlife. I mean, they haven't been taught to be afraid of anything. Yeah, They're right. still, you know, a, a clean slate. You, you can actually get to them before all these, you know, just untrue ideas about what's dangerous and what's scary get, you know, forced onto them by... You know, parents and other family members. Yeah, and I think that's one of the main things, like getting the kids before they're, you know, they're impressionable. Yeah. before the wrong people get to them, and we can then bring up a generation caring about wildlife and conservation. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's always that with snakes. There's always that nature versus nurture argument because we do have yeah. that sort of visual imprinting thing. What, yeah, uh, just for the listeners, what, what I mean by that is, mm. and this was a, a test that was done. If you take, um, they, they took subjects, uh, just random people, and they put them in front of a screen, and they said, all right. Um, press the button on the right if uh, if you see a predator. Press the button on the left if you see a herbivore. And they show them images of animals, and they're looking for your response time. And they say, we're just looking to see how fast people recognize different animals. But what they found, and what this is what they were actually looking for, was that people's response to, you know, um, arachnophobic, spy, yeah, uh, sure. uh, ophidiophobic, ophidiophobic, which mm-hmm. is fear of snakes. And um, almost everybody reacted faster and often, like... More incorrectly, there was more incorrect mm. but faster responses nonetheless. Yeah. Um, when the picture of the snake came up, yeah. just oh good, and people just and really quickly. So they think mm. that you know it is probably something that is a a leftover evolutionary defense mechanism yeah. because I mean there were snakes before that it, was it makes know, primates. Sense. They would have been eating our ancestors. They, you know, big matzoids, maybe big not, you know, snakes yeah. back then, or some very dangerous ones. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And so, and that that fear doesn't just—it's certainly true for snakes. It's probably one of the main ones. Yeah. So it um, is a survival instinct that, that yeah. was—I I, mean—and and still, in some senses, is very, very important for our survival. I mean, yeah, snakes absolutely. still do exist, but they, and they're dangerous. We yeah, we don't need absolutely. to tiptoe around that. They are dangerous. Absolutely, but, but with a bit of education about how to behave around exactly, it's—it. I mean, the safest place to be is not near a snake. Yeah. So that's when I get people who saying, "Oh, they're dangerous," so I kill them. So well, they're not dangerous. Until Unless you go you're to try standing to kill them, yeah. over it. And yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't have 
any like twenty meter long shovels. Yeah. So if you also, I don't have the strength to. I, I'm not sure if I mentioned if, this, but you know, the whole, <laughs> you know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit fucked up, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think I could hold a twenty meter long shovel to. Well, exactly. Yeah. So if you, if you, if which is the most common method that I've heard. Yeah. If you've got a shovel. You're probably within about Absolutely a meter way too close, of a very yeah. dangerous yeah. and very yeah. fast snake, and they're yeah. faster than you are. Yeah, you can't do anything about that. Yeah. So I always say to people, like, if you want, like, I I fully appreciate you want to be safe, you want your family to be safe. And the if best who, way to do that is to move away. The best way is to move away mm-hmm. because it won't bother you. It's not going to come after you. Absolutely. It wants to get away just as much as you do. Yeah. Now, if you stay away from it, you're safe, your family's safe, and then call a professional. Yeah. It's as simple as that. The, the interesting one, and I've seen this happen before, is when you accidentally spook a snake and it seems to come straight towards yeah. you, and then at the last minute it ducks down a little crevice or a log that's yes. right near you. Yeah. It's, uh, particularly red bellies. Red bellies are really, red belly black snakes are really um, spatially aware, yeah. and they'll have a yeah. bunch of hides that they actually know. Mm. So... If you accidentally stumble upon them, even if you're between them and their nearest hide, they're just going to go to that nearest hide, even yeah. if you're between them. They're and just going to go between your legs towards that log. That's probably that one of the most common, common things. You, you, you talk to people out, good. <laughs> you, you, talk, you, you hear people, you hear the story. I mean, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard it. Someone said, the snake chased me. Yeah, 100% yeah, yeah, yeah. the snake yeah, chased me. Absolutely. But then you talk to snake catchers. Yeah. They've never had a snake chase them. Yeah. Why is that? Is it because snakes... Oh, like, oh, this person's a snake catcher. I shouldn't chase them. <laughs> or is it because the snake catcher realizes that yeah. the snake is going from A to B? Yeah, the snakes. The, the, they the, happen to they be. They see in the way. that hook and bag, and they're yeah. like, "No, nah, that that dude knows what he's doing. Yeah. I'm, no, not, I'm, I'm not messing I'm not about anywhere near um, that. Yeah, 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 screw this shit. So I, I think it does come down to education. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. the best way to do that is start with kids, and that extends from not only snakes but. All wildlife. Ecosystems, ecology, conservation, obviously marine Obviously, one at the moment yeah. is bats. That's a big, oh, big yeah, talking point. Um, a lot of people are really scared. Again, fair enough. But we need education on what should you do in these situations and how should you handle yourself. Yeah, um, absolutely. And suddenly, if we educate people on it, the fear goes away. Yeah. And that's something that we really need to tackle right now. And look, the people like yourself, and Lisa was doing it for a while there, I know, and, you know, um, mm. was it, uh, Gecko's Wildlife, they're yeah. phenomenal. Mm. Um, those guys out there doing um, Cool Companions as well, they do great... I mean, there's so many great educational, yeah. Yeah. wildlife educational um, groups out there to do, you know, school parties, you know, birthday parties, things like that, mall appearances... And they're out there, and they're not getting enough work. Yeah. <laughs> and they, and dude, you can hire these people to come to your house, and they will put on the most amazing display, bring some beautiful native animals, and mm. yeah, some of them are still and struggling. I, I mean, the licensing fees to, to go and be a demonstrator it's are difficult. Heavy. It is very very yeah. difficult. Insurance to have snakes yeah, around that's children. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, roof, yeah. yeah. And, and, and like rightly so. Turning it into a successful business where you can continue to educate the public mm. because you're making an, enough and to keep going. The majority <laughs> of the time it's the kids asking the parents, yeah. can we get wildlife to our party or yeah. do yeah. something like that? And then the parents aren't really sure. Yeah. And I get quite a lot of parents, sort of family friends and mm. you know people from work and that kind of thing. Yeah. And they'll call me and say, who would you recommend? And obviously I, I know who I would a recommend, people, so yeah. I do. I have never, ever had... Someone come back to me and said, "I wish I didn't do that." Like, they're, they're like, they're <laughs> that was like, They absolutely love it every time. The kids are fanatical. They talk about it for weeks. Yeah, and it's everybody loves it. Who doesn't yeah. love having animals around? Like, especially at that age. Exactly. Yeah, it's you know so I mean? exciting, and mm. they can see stuff that, especially when you you have these demonstrators who have a lot of the animals that they might see on TV or hear about or read about, but they don't actually get to see them yeah. because they might be 
um, crepuscular. They they may be you know live in an environment crepuscular meaning sorry crepuscular so uh, <laughs> active at dawn and dusk so Absolutely. generally when people are inside their houses because it's cold or dark yeah. these animals that's when they're doing it so right on the first daylight when most people are in bed fair enough and you know just as it's getting dark so crepusculars are right on the edges nocturnal yeah. and diurnal exactly. nighttime daytime yeah um, so for example you know we had bandicoots and bats oh, and possums yeah, wow. and all these animals that you know, oh, and sugar gliders, things like that. So that's, these yeah. are kids like they hear about and they see on TV. They actually get to see them in yeah, real life. And, and that's really cool. I don't know about you guys, but when I got to see that stuff as a kid, when these demonstrators would come to school, that was like Something just the most yeah, incredible thing. You're like, I, wow, that's the thing. That's, I remember that fucker coming in with his little tubs and boxes and stacking them on the table, and you can see little things moving around yeah. in there. And you're like, yeah, yeah. is that? Is that, is that, is that yeah. yeah, man, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Even, it's absolutely I remember fantastic. when I was young and I was applying for jobs with some of these. Uh, I applied for a couple of demonstrator jobs. And they just they got more experienced people in. Yeah. I, was, I was a noob. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. But uh, I got there and like the interview like went well and like we you know, we had a, had a good time. And after mm-hmm. that, they asked all questions. Do you have any more questions? Do you have any more questions? I'm like, no, cool. And he's like, oh, do you, you sure you don't have any more questions? I'm just like, can I see your collection? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm still a six year old who's yeah. and like they showed me around and they showed me yeah. all their all their you know cool venomous stuff and their, their you know, nocturnal enclosures and I was. Yeah, I'm still a kid in a candy store. But to see that in children and to see that inspire them to really get into it Mm. is is super cool. So, yeah, I have massive respect for anybody who does that kind of educational demo work. It's really cool. Yeah, no, so I've I've done a bit of that. Um, I've done some work. um, Basically, uh, when you do get any permits, you need to do venom snake handling or wildlife handling. Um, So I've done a bit of work and volunteering, uh, basically just being a a side person for those training courses, so teaching people... Uh, how to safely catch and restrain venomous also, snakes. Also, you've, um, you've assisted in doing the venomous snake handling course. Yeah, yeah. That's um, cool. So I've done that quite a few times now. Um, and well, I mean, yeah. that's one of the th- like one of the best ways... One of the ways you know that you learnt something is if you can pass that knowledge on accurately to somebody else. Exactly. So that's that's always been one of my things. Is Even if it's just one of your, like your idiot buddies... And if you can, after a bunch of beers, just be like, hey, man, check this shit out. And you yeah. can actually yeah. explain it to them. Yeah. And, it, and they're just like, oh, that's what they mean by quantum physics. Then you probably, <laughs> you have a sort of, all right, nobody understands quantum physics. No. But, no. Yeah. But you, <laughs> you, you can, can at least, you, you can at least physics, pass on some of the basic concepts. Then you must understand those basic concepts yeah. somewhat well. Either that or you're feeding them a bunch of bullshit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a great happen. it's a great way to like sort of critique yourself as well. You Check say, like, your sources because yeah, they yeah, they absolutely. may ask questions. You're like, uh, actually, I don't know. Yes, yeah, or, or um, I think I know, but I'm not sure. And it, well, it's it's really a nice way to well. kind of find the edge of your knowledge as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah somebody will yourself. always hit you with something new. It's like, what do they know about mm. this? And oh, oh goddamn, you stopped me there. Yeah, it's and nice. That's, that's it's nice. It's always nice when you get there, and, and there yeah. is always that edge of knowledge that you will hit eventually. Yeah, and it's a fine conversation. Once you hit that point in a conversation. Yeah, now you kind of... Uh, that, that, to me, is always a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And that's a great one, because I've done uh, sort of displays at, like, University Open Days. That's cool. So, out at Gatton University, where I attend, do yep. wildlife science. Um, yeah, open day every year. I'm there, I'm volunteering. That's um, cool. So, we do stuff with wildlife for the Certificate 4 program. Well, um, that's cool, because you've got, like, genetic so you, students coming you get, up to you, you hitting you up with, everyone like, hard from, stuff. Like, oh, man, how many chromosomes do you, what do you know about how yeah. many single nucleotide polymorphisms it has been in Ruby? And you get, yeah, you get prospective students, you get prospective parents of students, you get current students, ex-students, people who studied decades ago and want to know what's happening now. Yeah. You get such a range of That's people. Cool. And because it's an open day... Yeah, you got to know your shit. <laughs> you know, 
Gallery offers this stuff. Yeah. Number one, you got to know your shit. Yeah. But also, you get really cool and interesting people who are genuinely yeah, right. wanting to know yeah, about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And cool. that's really cool as well because yeah. it's not your language like, oh, how big does it get? Which, yeah. you know, that's fine as well because yeah. that's the majority of what people want to know. Yeah. But you how big does really it get? How big of a tank do I need to give it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, can I keep it in a tub? Like, yeah. This is an olive path, and I so no. Sh- I have a shoebox. Yeah. So I'm going to need a bigger boat. You get some really interesting questions, yeah. which that's the bit I love the most. Yeah, because you can see, like, this is another human being that cares about something that I care about. Well, yeah, and that man, is I so... Mean, just that keep, keeps me going. Well, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast is, like... Um, passionate people like yourselves. I love having these conversations. Mm. You know, it's uh, like I said when we get to sort of weird edge some of the some of the time. Yeah, I, I you know, yeah. I feel I, I feel tingly. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but I find that myself included, a lot of wildlife people generally get you know we're quite introverted. We spend a lot of time on ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a few out to the bush yeah, by ourselves, that's right, and that's yeah. totally fine. We don't yeah. mind. Yeah. But it does make it hard to find other people who are also yeah. in the bush by themselves. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Most and, people, and look, uh, scientists yeah. have a bit of a reputation of not being the best communicators. No. And, yeah, and biologists do no different. Talk generally. to each other and yeah. not really anyone else and the sort of gaps between us. So, yeah. Yeah, it's getting, having that, and it sort of goes back to what we were saying before with, you know, the internet and everything is made it so much easier for people to, yeah. you know, do these kinds of things yeah. and meet like-minded individuals. And yeah. Instead of, like, walking good. through the street covered in your pet snakes, like, I'm a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it won't go down. It, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It Speaking doesn't. of all the snakes, um, let's, uh, let's talk about snake breeding, man. How did, how, did you, how did you get into that? Was that something that um, you'd always wanted to do or is something that you kind of slowly... No, wanted? it um, wasn't something I always wanted to do. Uh, in fact, I, back when I started keeping when I was yeah. a kid... I was like, that's for, like, scientists and stuff. Yeah, like, right, I couldn't yeah. possibly do that. Like, that's that's crazy. Like, yeah. Um, and then I kept for quite a long time um, and basically, yeah, just that natural progression of, like, I want more and I want to do more. Um, you kind of get the bug. And especially when I started <laughs> getting into studying science and studying ecology, things like that, um, and really started getting into the idea of um, breeding for conservation. Yeah, mm-hmm. that really, really pushed me. That was probably the thing where I said I need to start learning this stuff because yeah, right, okay. I was messaging people saying, "Oh, I'm really interested about this like small elapid, you know, that's endangered, like broadheads or things yeah. like that." Where it's like, "Are we breeding? What are we doing? Like, what's happening?" Yeah, what's the breeding program and running for? Such almost such? the first question that everyone asked me is like, "Oh, have you have you bred anything before? What's your experience of breeding?" Yeah, and I'd be like, "Uh." kept snakes yeah i've never bred anything and there's that, the door yeah and so, like to get involved uh, in these projects which i you want need to, to have that you need to have experience yeah, so yeah, absolutely that was i was happy keeping them just because i enjoyed having them um i certainly wanted to get into the conservation side of things so uh basically like care and rehabilitation of injured wildlife that was always something i had uh planned um and yeah it sort of like progressed to if you want to do this there is quite a need, I believe, for captive breeding of endangered species because yeah. sometimes, like, we have this idea of protectionism where it's like, oh, just leave them alone and protect them. It doesn't always work, and yeah. sometimes you really don't have a choice. Like, we, we need to bring things into captivity. Well, the, the idea of leave them, them alone safe. and protect them is, is unfortunately sometimes messed up In... by unscrupulous douchebags who want to make money, yeah. first of all, and secondly, by the damage that we do to the ecosystem. Um, yeah. I guess sometimes fairly directly, but a lot of the time, you know, mm. kind of unconsciously as a sort of secondary result of just yeah. 
the size of humanity. And there's so many species out there that are in this situation yeah. at the moment. Unfortunately, with just growth and development, um, there's a lot of habitats that are getting you know smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, and right. This is this is just an, an inevitable. Um, occurrence that's going to happen. Sure. So we do have a lot of habitats and species that need our help. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, like, I would love for the world to just be like, everybody loves all these animals and we're going to save them all, but that's just, that, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, most people don't really care, this, which is a sad truth. We need, um, basically, we're going to make people care who don't already care about wildlife. Yeah. We need to give them some incentive. And a lot of time, that's money. Yeah. So if you put a monetary value on something, suddenly people who didn't care before do care. And that's often the big way that, that, that... Well, sometimes that's the only way you can get people to care about a certain yeah. wild, wild, wild species mm. is to turn it into um, a wild commodity. And that's... Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's a sad reality of conservation, but it, that's sometimes kinda, the only... It kind of feels like you're making a deal with the devil sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, the way I see it, it's like, yeah. well, you've got two options. Either we can leave it alone and tell ourselves we're going to protect it and then let it go extinct yeah. out of spite for not wanting to, you know, put a monetary value on things, which I totally get because I used to think that way. Like, oh, yeah. this is, it's important because of what it is and not because it might be worth money. Yeah. But unfortunately that, it's just doesn't, not doesn't so always play. I would, I would rather, um, I don't know, I guess. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Yes. Because, um, just as, as far as the, the breeding thing, the, like the turnaround with that is uh, like, for example, um, public breeding for like the green tree python yeah right so when that's now allowed to be bred in captivity um i think they did studies re uh, in like was it 2014 or something and um just a heap of them are straight up caught from the wild yeah right? so there's obviously so once 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 you open the floodgates yeah. a little bit to allow people to keep and breed these things People are like, oh, there's money in keeping and breeding these things. Mm. So much easier to just go to Indonesia, shove a bunch in a bag from the jungle, yeah. if you can, if you know a hotspot where there's a bunch of them. So unfortunately, that makes you know that that comes with its own problem. It, it certainly does. And also, when you talk about um, sort of like keeping uh, genetic sort of strains, yeah. pure, like not in breeding. Yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of issues where keeping them as pets. That's People keeping them as pets is not the answer. Yeah. But keeping them and breeding them in captivity with stud book programs. Yeah, okay. And, and keeping a strong yeah. genetic so, population structure yeah, and you, high you genetic You do need diversity. to put a lot more consideration into that thing, yeah. uh, those kind of things, if you're going to be actually doing this for the conservation side of things yeah. rather than just pets. Yeah. Um, so, so you basically also need to keep a pedigree you, of absolutely everything you've got going yeah, on. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess I just think that, yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a species in captivity than not at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolute worst case scenario, yeah. like we can get it back. Yeah. If something goes extinct, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. Like that's just, there's nothing we can do after that. Mm. So if we can at least um, take these species into captivity, like with the Ompelli python at the moment, yeah, for example. That was, a, that was a great story it, that they, they, yeah. they're breeding them up north now. And I mean, oh, those babies it, were beautiful. Just the Onapelli python, by the way, is um, a beautiful rock python from up north. Mm. Um, Kimberley area? Yeah, they uh, sort of all throughout the Northern Territory. Yeah. Um, so they range from quite north um, through sort of Arnhem Land, that kind a, of area. Yeah, that's a um, big snake. Mm. Yeah, basically hang out in the rocky, uh, sort of like the sandstone escarpments yeah, up there. Big on the rock wallabies and stuff creeks, up there. Yeah. Jesus, um, they're beautiful snakes. Yeah, they're yeah, so that's a perfect example where we know this species is... I mean, we don't know a lot about it, but we're fairly certain the populations are declining. Yeah. Either we say, oh, well, let's just sort of protect it and see what we can do, 
and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. We say, well, how about we do that and we bring him into captivity? It's just another way that yeah, we can absolutely. try to conserve the species. Do you know who's running the program? I forget the name, but they're absolute legends. Whoever's running that is such a champion. Mm. Much much props to whoever's breeding the Anapelli pythons up there in the Northern Territory. Um, shout out to you. I'm going to have a drink for you right now, actually. Uh, guys, I think um, we're going to have to end our little uh, uh, bit of uh, chit-chat here and move into some new research topics. Yeah, cool. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. Um, basically, we're just going to move into just a couple of interesting bits of research that have been coming in and out. Um, you're listening to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We've got... Hamish from That Reptile Guy. Thanks so much for coming and talking snake breeding. That's cool, man. Anytime, you're always welcome back to... um, Lisa's spot on the couch is actually going to rotate. Unfortunately, she can't be here with us (laughs) every week, so occasionally we're going to have maybe Hamish or Yasmin or some other wildlife nerd come down. But anyway, let's get into some research. Um, Man, this first new interesting piece that I've got um, uh, is on the complete mitochondrial genome. Of the, uh, the endangered Mary River turtle, Ellison macrurus. Um, and they found, uh, and low uh, mtDNA variation across the species range in Australian Journal of Zoology. That's uh, Schmidt et al. 2016. Um, that's the uh, molecular genetics crew there at Griffith University doing awesome stuff. Yes. Um, interesting stuff. So if um, the, the Mary River turtle is um, massively endangered, it's one of these these species that totally, totally needs a, uh, some some breeding programs out there, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, the they ha- the nest uh, survival uh, sorry nest surveys indicate that survival in the in the breeding population is down about ninety five percent since nineteen seventy four. So they've gotten crushed. Uh, today, uh, goanna and fox predation um, is probably the main cause of a lot of their. Um, uh, reduced recruitment rates and mm. stuff like that. But in the past, it's been um, commercial egg harvests. Yep. So Mary River turtles were kept as a pet. This is one of mm. these things that we're, you know, we were talking about, the difference between, I guess, um, unregulated keeping and regulated keeping mm. and yeah. then the difference between that and a conservation breeding program. This was basically completely unregulated keeping. So people would go out and raid nests so yeah, you could breed them. just not the right way to do things. Yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's yeah. really not. Um, on top of that, look, the, the, these uh, these little guys, are, they breed in spring and summer, and they have to travel up to two kilometres from their sort of vegetated banks. Is it upstream to the sandy, sandy? Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I think sure I think it's upstream towards a, towards yeah. a sandy sandy banks where they prefer to mm-hmm. nest. So they've got this massive sort of dispersal period in uh, during the their reproductive phase. It makes them uh, a little bit vulnerable as well. But uh, anyway, um, over there at Griffith, uh, Schmidt et al. That's uh, I believe that's uh, Daniel Schmidt down there at, the, at Griffith, doing fantastic stuff. They've done some shotgun sequencing and they've sequenced the entire mitochondrial genome. Um, it's all 37 genes, uh, 16 and a half kilo base pairs. So I'll just uh, explain a little bit what that means. Uh, shotgun sequences is very similar to the method how they sequence the human genome. You basically take the whole genome. And you smash it into bits. Um, one way to do it is with uh, what they call a sonicator. You basically shake it apart with sound waves. And Sounds sh- so hardcore. Yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. So cool. Just play it some metal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some really nice licks. Um, and it, it just shreds apart. Um, and then uh, you do what's called uh, uh, chain termination and chain termination sequencing, the Sanger, Sanger sequencing, which goes from um, those broken ends you sequence forward. Right? Now, you're not going to get really long bits of sequence. But because you're doing it in so many so many um, copies of the genome and in so many random places, 
you're going to get sequences which overlap. And then using computation, you can put all those overlapping sequences together, see where they match up to get a, a full genetic sequence, and then you can read that um, for variation and stuff like that. Or you can, you can compare it against other genomes out there by um, aligning it with something like BLAST, which is a basic local alignment sequencing tool. Basic yeah, local cool. sequence alignment tool. Uh, alignment sequencing tool. Uh, I don't know you're, my acronyms. You're the genetics guy. I was the genetics guy. Now I've had five times <laughs> Anyway, um, very interesting stuff. They have such a reduced distribution, dramatically reduced population size due to the whole pet trade thing, and um, really low genetic diversity. Now, I think we were talking about this last, a little bit, at, towards the end of last podcast, which got cut out because we had some technical issues last podcast. We only got about halfway. Um, genetic diversity is really important because uh, having all these different variants uh, in the population means individuals have different adaptive responses mm. to an environmental change like, you know, a disease or, a, you know, a, a flooding or, you know, a temperature change or a salinity change. Um, if somebody can't handle it, somebody else can handle it, they'll survive and breed to the next season, yeah. yada, yada, yada. So having variation um, is, is very important. Now, they've sequenced 22 um, uh, samples um, from uh, across the entire range of eight sites, and they only found two mitochondrial haplotypes. Now, that's not a lot. Um, to put it in perspective... Um, uh, you know, a study with, um, like, let's say, a single mitochondrial gene might have, let's say, 600 base pairs, 600 codes of, of, of genome that you're looking at. They had 16 and a half thousand base pairs of code. So you would hope to find a lot more variants in that amount. Mm -hmm. Okay, in a sing in a simple study of, of a, let's say, 600 base pair fragment of, let's say, a gene, we'll, we'll pick one at random, like ND4, mm. cytochrome oxidase one, whatever, doesn't really matter. Um, you might find, you know, a dozen haplotypes, uh, by which we mean um, mitochondrial genome variants, um, and they found two. So, is this? Do, do you know if this is common to turtles or reptiles or? No, I mean. Uh, I, I think this is just a massive reduction in, in genetic diversity because of the how heavily the population was plundered. Mm, so they've gone okay. through a population bottleneck. Um, yeah. A population bottleneck is, is you know when you reduce the genetic diversity massively, and then even if it grows again, it's not going to have the same Once amount of diversity. Once you've lost those genes, they're yeah, gone. Exactly, that's, that's right. You've got to wait for mutation to pop up yeah. or migration if there's another population somewhere with different gene yeah. variants to bring it back in. Either that or, you know, hopefully you've got some in a captive breeding program and you sequence them and you go, oh, my God, these old ones from a captive breeding program are a different mitotype, a different yeah. uh, haplotype. <clears throat> um, and now you can m maybe, if it's, you know, unless you're massively messing with the population demographics, you can maybe introduce that back in the population and get some gen genetic diversity in there. And importantly, you can look at the difference. Imagine if we had never taken them yeah. from the wild and we never had that population and then we've looked like, oh, well, is this normal? Is yeah, this right. used to be this way? Who knows? Potentially. Well, we I mean, I don't, I don't think we do know. I don't think we we have a study of the mitotypes from back then. Yeah. Do we? I, I, I don't, I don't think there is one. There may be, but I'm not aware of them. Yeah. yeah. Did you Did you see much of that? Because I know you read that article quite heavily, Yeah, no, Lisa. I didn't really say anything about that, I don't think, in mm. there. Yeah. See, that's a shame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's pretty Wait, worrying. It is, it is. That's, mm. a, that's a very, very low genetic diversity for a species out there, particularly with such a reduced um, range. You know, this is, uh, that's kind of, it's kind of hitting all the nails on the head for a species that needs, you know, some assistance in, in, in survival and conservation. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
And and still to this day, fox and goanna predation going on. Mm. Who knows if there's mm. still poaching going on for it? I mean, I, I imagine it's probably seduced, reduced a whole lot by now. But which is potentially a positive of keeping in captivity because I mean, yeah, maybe when you've got that many, mm. why it's not rare anymore. It's yeah, well, I mean, yeah. If there was, is is there a big Mary River, captive Mary River turtle population? Is it, are, I don't. Is, I don't are, know they, are they a Mary for... River? Um, but certainly some of the turtles in captivity are. So common that yeah, there's there's plenty you of can captive turtles that you free. Yeah. Sometimes it's like why would you want the rarest, them. most difficult to keep one that's struggling in the wild unless you're like yeah. a total. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which look, there's some people out there. Yeah, they, they, they do exist. They do exist. Unfortunately, <laughs> but um. Anyway, I th- like to have that genome sequenced is uh, and, and to see yeah, it is huge and it's. Man, that, that, that gives you a, a really good kind of foundation to, to go forward on. And um, that knowledge of the genetic diversity, uh, it, it gives you a really good um, base to work on as far as, um, I guess, management and conservation mm. plans. Yeah, right? It would be really interesting to see if they do some other species and other yeah, turtle species in yeah. I imagine they've been done. I didn't really look into it, but I, like, surely... I, I remember them saying, was like, this is a ridiculously low genetic diversity. Yeah, there, there would, was other ones mentioned in there. Yeah, yeah. of course they've done, like, yeah. yeah. There's been others done. They wouldn't be saying, this is really low, if they hadn't done it, you know, yeah, if it wasn't sure. a comparison. I think in there they, they had compared it to another sort of... Um, another, sa- same genus, Elisora or something? Like that. Gosh, I'd have to read it Who knows? Yeah. Is, yeah, is there, is, but yeah, it was it was another population that had was in quite a small area as well. Yeah, um, and it had a greater genetic diversity. It did have yeah, greater I can imagine. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, 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 so I guess, I guess that's why they they came to the conclusion of you know it's just mm. all the plundering that's been going on in the populations by um yeah. captive breeding. Mm. Anyway, that's a it's a good step forward that one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. All right, let's move on. Um, origin of the Eastern Brown Steak. Pseudo not Eastern Brown Steak. Steak. Yeah, brown Steak. Do I slice me Did some more cake steak? there? <laughs> do I, do I, do I give me a little slice more cake there? I'll, I'll, I'll keep I'm, reading. I'm having this one. Yeah, no, 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 we got a whole cake over there, man. Thanks, Lisa. Legend. I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep jabbering while you do that. Is that right? <laughs> so, origin of the Eastern Brown Steak. Pseudo Naha Textilis. I'm just gonna keep saying steak in New Guinea. <laughs> Uh, evidence of multiple dispersals from Australia and comments on the status of um, Pseudonata, Pseudonaha textilis puai. Uh, this is in Zootaxa, Williams et al. 2016. So, a um, little bit of background here. Um, I guess uh, with molecular gen- genetics coming up, um, the biogeographic history of organisms is like we're getting a really good handle on how populations and different um, species got to where they are um, mm. over time. Um, and uh, looking at biogeographic history through molecular genetics is one way to do that. Uh, and an area that's been getting a, a fair bit of interest, but I guess the focus has previously been on mammals and birds and stuff like that, has been the, um, the border between Papua New Guinea and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of shared taxa. You know, there's, um, we share um, the death out of genus. So there's um, Acanthopus levis uh, in... Um, this, yeah... I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. Um, L-A-E-V-I-S. Mm, yeah. The death adder up there. Um, and they've got, um, you know, they've got a couple of black snakes. They've got taipans up there. And also, um, in uh, 1953, two um, samples found in Papua New Guinea's uh, fourth Archibald expedition of um, eastern brown snakes. Now, the Archibald expeditions, by the way, <laughs> I had to check into this. 
Why is this Archibald expedition? So Richard Archibald, um, in uh, 1963, um, started the uh, Archibald expeditions. He's a, a naturalist, uh, a zoologist, and an explorer. So they uh, started these natural history and exploration um, survey mm. trips. It's a non-for-profit um, and they um, cruised around uh, initially Papua New Guinea and sort of Pacifica Oceania, um, just like like old school naturalists. They were doing it in uh, <laughs> in the fifties. Yeah. So that's when they found a couple of these things. And um, they um, were mentioned that they look very similar to uh, Queensland mm -hmm. and um, northwestern type eastern browns, except for one difference: um, twelve maxillary teeth. Now, by maxillary teeth, we mean it's solid teeth, um, not the uh, not the fangs, not the not the fangs. Exactly right. Um, whereas um, the only difference uh, between um, our ones here in, in Australia is they generally have 9 to 11 teeth. Mm. So I guess it's just you know a couple of um, solid teeth difference, and then this thing that they found over there in Papua New Guinea is an eastern brown snake. It's the Australian eastern brown mm. snake, which previously was um, not known to be there. So, so that's a pretty recent kind of discovery. Oh, that's So just for some people listening, uh, species can disperse in a number of ways. Now, obviously, over land, that's pretty easy. Um, as long as the environment permits it, they can disperse to who knows how far. But the thing is, uh, with dispersing overseas, reptiles are particularly good at this because they can live for a very long time without food and water. Now, if you have a mammal that gets caught on a little raft of you know, debris or logs and they get sent out into the sea... It's going to dehydrate. ...in the sun with mm -hmm. no fresh water or food, they're going to perish pretty quickly. Reptiles, on the other hand... They'll do okay. They're loving it. They're like, well, I got sun. <laughs> I got a great view. Like, yeah. They don't really need much else. They they can float around the oceans for potentially a, bit longer, a anyway. very yeah. very long time yeah. until they wash up on some island somewhere. Yeah. And they run ashore, and it's sort of like nothing changed. Well, I mean, they're they're waterproof on the outside, right? Essentially, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, reptiles are very good at dispersing overseas. Yeah. The um the interesting thing then is um is this a as you say by ocean a modern dispersal. Or is this a much older dispersal? Um, so I guess when you kind of look at, uh, let's say, the death adders and sort of the black snakes and taipans and things like that, there's some uh, between Australia and New Zealand, uh, Papua New Guinea. Some of them are absolutely separate species, mm -hmm. right? They have there's the Papua New Guinea black snakes, and then there's the Australian groups of black snakes. There's yeah. a couple of Papua New Guinea death adders, and then there's the Australian groups of death adders. Some... And then you have like. Then you have some that are definitely kind of like they're the same species, but their their genetics are, are, are slightly different. Yeah. But so some of them, some of the ones that you'll find pythons, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Some of the ones that you find in Papua New Guinea will have Australian genetics, and some will have a bit more unique, but they're not entirely separate across the border yet. Mm. And then there's some that you can't tell any any goddamn difference. Yeah. Like the um, was it the the taipans? Between Papua New Guinea, um, the coastal type is between Papua New Guinea and um, very, East very, Australia. Similar. very, very hard to tell apart. Yeah. So, um, because it seems that the transfer between the two um, land masses is pretty, like it happens now and again to the point that you've kind of got different temporal uh, levels of adaptation to that unique Papua New Guinea environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, that it makes it even harder to guess where this brown snake came from. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Is it there because of one of these different types of natural time? And then there was another theory that um, you know they were brought over because it was a, you know they were found around the 1950s. They were thought that maybe they were brought over there on like military equipment from Australia, so it could mm. be an accidental invasive. Mm. In which case, that that's a big medical problem for mm. for Papua New Guinea if they have a new invasive species that is going to start 
populating their island. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's the um, Australian Eastern Brown Snake. Well, that's the number one biter in Australia. Um, so, and they they may not have large anti-venom stocks for it. Mm. So it it is quite important to know, I guess, um, its biogeographic history. So, antigenetics, right? That's uh, generally the way to go. Yeah. Um, and um, so we had this uh, study here from uh, Williams et al. in Zootaxa. And they had five samples from Papua New Guinea, one from uh, uh, in Indonesia, I think, uh, or Indo Indo New Guinea, Indo Papua. Um, and they were looking at and see, this is a more typical um, mitochondrial study. Mm. They're looking at not just you know they're not looking at the whole genome; they're looking at a couple of different genes and then like some of the flanking regions. So they're, what they're looking at is 900 base pairs of mitochondrial DNA. So they sequenced um, the um, the ooh, transfer RNA, um, the Lu transfer RNA and the His transfer RNA on either side of uh, nitrogen, nitrogen dehydrogenase 4, which is one of the cytochrome oxidase genes. Guys, all this terminology, you can ignore a lot of it and just search Google it. it. They were looking, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Google it. Um, 900 base pairs of mitochondrial DNA. That's, that's the most important part. They were looking at 900 base pairs. The last study was looking at 16.5 thousand base pairs. That's the difference between sort mm. of a, a genomic yeah. study and a genetic study. But still, I mean, you still get amazing data, uh, biogeographic data, and it's easier to do. It's easier, quicker. Sometimes quick and nasty gets you the exact same result. And that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, interestingly, the um, sort of... Uh, Southeast, northwest, and central uh, west Australian groupings of brown snakes exist. So we've got um, a sort of southeastern uh, group of brown snakes that's all along the east coast. We've got a central western group, and we've got a northeastern group of, um, of eastern brown snake. Um, that's kind of how the, um, the genetics break up into these uh, little subpopulations. Now... If you're looking at the uh, the you know the phylogeny and then kind of backtrack by phylogeny I mean like uh, for the, for your listeners um, I mean a kind of a branching tree of life and we're building this using the differences in in genetics one um, an easy way to wrap you around around this and this isn't the the general method used is called the distance method if you take two DNA sequences and you just compare the number of overall differences and compare that um, divide that by the number of base pairs, then you get a percentage difference. And we call that the genetic distance between two sequences. It's very, very simple and it's a very, very crude method. It's it's not ignoring it's completely ignoring the importance of different substitutions and things like that. Ignore all that for now. Just imagine that we've got these different levels of genetic distance between sequences. And now we draw like a pedigree with on closer branches we have ones with less distance between them. Branches with more uh, more branches between them. Uh, samples with more branches between them, greater genetic distance. So that's one way to build a phylogeny, very simple and crude. Um, when doing this, you can then also, if you know the rate at which things mutate, if you can create a molecular clock, then you can track back to when those splits in the tree happened. And this is what we do a lot of the, what they do a lot of the time with biogeography um, by looking at uh, by looking at kind of um, phylogeography. So you put yeah, phylogenetics right. over, over geography. Um, so um, it looks like there's been two Pleistocene dispersals. So the Pleistocene was uh, 2.6 million to 12,000 years ago, long time ago. The seed level dropped 75 metres during the wow. Pleistocene um, glaciation. So the glaci there was glaciers during the Pleistocene, and the seed level around Australia dropped 75 metres. And that seems to be when these 
uh, groups have come over because they're they're um there seems it seems that the eastern New Guinea and uh, the western Indo Papua Hapla groups um, respectively came from northeast and central west. Um, Australian haplogroups. So central west, a, a little bit above central west Australia, you've got kind of the bit of Darwin there. Yeah, right. And and from that tip, we've had some go through to uh, Indo-Papua out in the west, and then for sort of from Cape York, I imagine we've had the um, the northeastern Australian group go to sort of eastern New Guinea, mm. and and it, it appears they're actually a completely natural. Um, dispersal. Why it hasn't been all one big push is because those were separate land bridges. Yeah. Even though, even though the ocean went down, in between them was what what is now the Gulf of Carpentaria. That yeah. was Lake Carpentaria. Yeah, yeah sure. that was a giant inland lake. Yeah. So they were moving on either side of this lake in two different mm. genetic groupings. You had the eastern haplotypes on one side of Lake Carpentaria crossing the land bridge, and then on the other side of Lake Carpentaria, you had the central. Central Western Eastern Brown Snake Group going to sort of Indo Papua. So, really, really cool study showing that they are actually more than likely absolutely native. They, they, they um, disperse there separately, but around the same time, apparently, um, I think, if I got that right, um, in the Pleistocene. Um, during a, uh, a glacial period when there was a 75 meter sea level drop. Do we know how long that period lasted for? The sea level drop. The sea level drop. We, as scientists, do. We, me, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea how long that. Um. So that would have been one of the glacial periods. We're, we're, we're in a we're in an interglacial now, folks. We're in a nice, lovely, warm interglacial, which is why um, the um, sea levels are a bit higher. And we'll get a lot higher if we fuck it up. <laughs> um, guys, we've we're, we've been chatting a lot. Um, I think we're going to have to move on from new research. We've got all this great stuff to talk about, but. I think we're going to have to keep on going on to some news. Yeah, and we'll, we'll bring it back. We'll talk yeah. about it next time. Yeah. Let's move on to some new subjects, guys. We're, um, mm. we're, we're running out of time. We have still to talk about. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm still really buzzed off all this caffeine. <laughs> keep I think drinking. I'm like, yeah, if I drink any more of these, I'm going to start seeing the future. <laughs> Good talking point, though. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah, we'll find out. We'll get back to you guys and find out what's happening on some new, new research. Um. <laughs> so, all right, from ABC Online. This is a little bit old already. 18th of August, um, Queensland government got blocked in their attempt to close loopholes in the Vegetation Management Act. Um, bit of a bit of a shame um, for the conservation-minded out there. Um, if you guys know the statewide land cover and trees study, that's S-L-A-T-S, SLATS, from uh, 2014 to 2015... That showed that uh, 269,000 hectares of woody vegetation has been cleared um, in the in, in 2014 to 2015. And that uh, doubled, didn't it? Since uh, that's a double from, from since 2011 to 2012. Mm, that's terrible. Um, uh, 108,000 hectares of that, I think, was in the Great Barrier Reef catchment area. Mm. That's a huge amount of vegetation <coughs> clearing um, going on in some very very sensitive areas during a time when the reef is being um, in some um, some serious strife, Dr. Tim Sealing from the Queensland Conservation Council um, made it very clear that um, this is Queensland uh, uh, causing 90% of Australia's uh, land clearing greenhouse gas. So when you clear trees, you actually cause greenhouse gas by um, trees uh, now dying and rotting, or like being mulched and then rotting. It's, it's releasing a lot of CO2 and methane as as the microbes, you know, 
Because that CO2 is stored Absolutely. in the trees. In, As in they the grow, yeah, they're absorbing right. that CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it in... And then when you slowly let it, um, well, when you mulch it up and rather quickly let it rot on the ground, you're releasing that very, very fast. And that has happened once before, and it caused a mass extinction on our planet. Which which mass extinction was that? I, which one? Was it the it, KT boundary? Or? It, oh, I can't remember which one it was. Um, but that was before, that was when uh, plants basically evolved lignin. And they started getting bigger and taller. Yes. They evolved from the little uh, liverworts and mosses. Yep, yep, yep. They got big. They started absorbing all this carbon. Yeah, um, and then mega oxygen. Nothing was breaking them down. Those yep. trees were just going down to the ground. Yeah. And then we had a lot of volcanic activity. Burnt all of those trees that had not been broken down. Massive, massive greenhouse gas effect. So I just punched up the coffee bean that was in there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry to disrupt. Continue. It's, it's something we've we know what happens when <laughs> carbon is released into the atmosphere. It's happened before. Bad yeah. things happened. Let's yeah, not make that mistake again. We, we don't everyone. want to do it. Let's yeah. not do that. So yeah, it, look, it's not good. That's thirty-five million tons of CO two per year that we're, that Queensland is releasing. Not to mention all the habitat we're losing. Mm-hmm. And that's less trees that are absorbing species. it back. Yeah, up again. So. Now, um, yeah. this um, just the release of this information has been called a blatant attack on farmers and. Um, <laughs> Uh, pol- politicization of data um, by um, the opposition and, uh, and the various public independents. Know what's happening. Yeah, no, no. absolutely. <laughs> if any time you're releasing actual data that is meaningful to something that somebody has an interesting uh, an interest in, you're uh, you're politicizing data. Right. Yes. yes. I, 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 their I, investment shouldn't be tampered with. No. <laughs> yes. It was uh, yeah, totally a blatant attack. Not a, a well done, well funded study. Um, that, ladies and gentlemen, is sarcasm. <laughs> well, let's move on. Um, let's move on. Something a bit more fun. Yeah. In the conversation, this one was fun. Um, uh, an article called Poke Ecology, as in yes. Pokemon, Poke Ecology, <laughs> a mixture of Pokemon and ecology. Um, people will never put down their phones, but games can get them focused on nature. So this is an opinion in um, based. Uh, this was an article based on an opinion in Restoration Ecology. Uh, called Egress, How Technophilia Can Reinforce Biophilia to Improve Ecological Restoration. Um, if you guys have uh, played uh, Ingress, um, then you, you're a little bit older, and you then you, you, know, you saw the Pokemon thing coming, and, and you're like, oh my god, this is, gonna, this is going to take over everything. I, I have to hide. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, the Pokemon thing now is massive, and I love it. I think it's phenomenal. Um, I was always a big Pokemon fan. I'm not a big a big gamer, but I love being, you know, being a wildlife. I love Pokemon. Yeah, so I love it. to see people out there enjoying it. I think yeah. it, it gets people interested in the idea of weird, bizarre wildlife and getting involved in a wildlife. Being um, active. Yeah, being active, but, but being passionate yeah. about, about wildlife, even if it is imaginary. God damn it, that's great. But... <laughs> Um, it's getting people uh, outside. It's competitive. It's fun, and it's outdoor interaction through those these mobile MAR mobile augmented reality games. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine the uh, what what you could do if you could sort of let's say you put rarer Pokemon in old only in old growth forest. You know, the the forest has to be you know well maintained, restored, and you know if you have a, a crappy landscape. That has been completely destroyed. No Pokemon there. Yeah. So people start planting trees. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty extreme sort of example of, like, manipulating people. With it. <laughs> kind of yeah. manipul- manipulating people into planting trees using um, mobile augmented reality. Oh, we're already um, manipulating them into exercising. Well, that's right. Yeah. It's so, possible. Yeah. I, I know I say manipulating, but I'm not sure I'm against it. You know? <laughs> maybe I am. I don't know. But it's it's the idea anyway is to use maybe use these mobile augmented reality things to get people outside, get people more involved in, in their ecosystems. Mm. 
And, like, I mean, even just gaming in general. A great example that, that also came out was um, there was a game called No Man's Sky. Um, and it's yeah. basically a computer program that just yep. permutates uh, new worlds with new organisms throughout this um, virtual, All based on just, virtual just space. Equations. Yeah, just yeah, maths. based on code. So yeah. they have their own genetic uh, algorithms and their own you know world building algorithms. And off it goes, it permutates and creates just this giant universe for you to go and explore. And there's already been uh, 10 million species described so far. 10 million species of of animals. That's not species of plants and stuff, which you know. Animal-wise, that makes it 6.5 times um, the amount of known animals on Earth already <laughs> that have been discovered in this game. That's incredible. And I'm, I'm not a gamer, but my little brother's been playing this. Yeah. And I have been watching very intently. Very cool. because there's so much random cool stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. I, like, I mean, that's... <clears throat> again, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a big gamer, but that's something that, that, that would... Yeah, it's, that, it's just... That interests it me. Provokes it provokes yeah. curiosity. It's Absolutely. Like what, and it also gives you think, like, what might be out there? Yeah, and, 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 and imagine cool playing stuff. these things yeah. a few years from now in kind of, like, virtual reality space. Yeah with the headgear on and stuff so it's not on a laptop it's almost like you are actually there virtually finding these new organisms yeah. whether or not um, and this was the, the one thing that I was I was thinking whether or not it's real one thing that it does teach you is how to be a taxonomist yeah it teaches you how to look for morphological features how to maybe even do bio and morphometrics start measuring certain characteristics oh, okay this this genus of organisms has a common feature and i'm going to measure it and see how much variation there is in this feature and, and some do of these games really allow you to go to that level yeah and people are, take it pretty seriously like, I, I imagine they do. <laughs> and a lot of people like well 10 million we, species yeah. discovered so far yeah, that's uh, people that's, get uh, right amongst that's serious it, yeah, yeah. All right, guys, uh, moving on. Uh, ABC Online, uh, this was a nasty one. BP site for oil drills in mm. the Great Australian Bight Marine Park could not be more inappropriate. So um, the maps released by um, the Wilderness Society, um, which are overlays of BP's maps, show that four uh, of their wells are within the Great um, Australian Bight Marine Park Benthic Protection Area. Right in the middle. R- smack bang. Um, yeah. uh, not just in the marine park, the whole area, like the whole surrounding area is marine park, but that's the marine benthic protection area mm. where the, the benthic, uh, the benthos, the base of the, like the, the, the ocean floor is also protected, not just the column of water mm. above it. And that's the one place they're deciding to put the drills. So the one place where they actually have to mess with the bottom is exactly in the middle of um, of the um, yeah benthic protection areas. Um, Man, that's it's it's crazy. There's been uh, protests with uh, you know some of the um, uh, Mirren people of the uh, Great Australian Bight area, Wilderness Society, Sea Shepherd, uh, various Australians, uh, politicians there. Man, and this is um, this is from BP who in 2010. Dumped what? How many? Eighty million liters of oil into the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah, something terrible. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> so yeah, that's an interesting one, guys. Mm. If 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 you're uh, if you if you've got a I guess a conservation opinion on anything and you want to write to somebody or or do something, that's ma- marine protection in Australia. I think is is a big one. We have so much amazing marine life, mm. and um, we've been really good with it so far. There hasn't been a lot of oil spills on our coasts. Yeah. Um, Australia, we, we've, we've said it before and we've said it again, Australia's uh, ecology is unique and sensitive because of how resource poor the landscape is. Everything has to interact and there's a lot of co-relationships that are really, really sensitive. So you start knocking one domino. Mm-hmm. Our, our ecosystem really can't handle as much perturbation as a lot of other places can yeah. because of that resource, um, yeah, that resource limitation and um, 
and all that. Yeah. Gondwana's just been sitting here for a long time, getting <laughs> getting sapped of resources. Right? We yeah. don't have much left, so yeah. we got to we got to. Yeah, everything's pretty reliant on each other. Um, all right, this was a this was a really cool one, guys. What did, you, did you guys hear about the Greenland shark? Yes. yes, that was awesome. Okay. Yes. I knew you guys would have been on for that. <laughs> so this is this is the Greenland shark, uh, Somniosus microcephalus. I hope I got that right. Um, now the oldest known vertebrate, they get up to mm-hmm. potentially four hundred years old. So this is a beautiful old uh, old shark. Incredible. And um, there's there's various ways to date um, fishes, by the way, and, and typical ways to look at osteoliths. Which um, uh, ear bones, which kind of stack up, kind of like tree rings. They grow layers. Unfortunately, Dan wants to be dead to cap them. Yeah, but yeah. but here's yeah. the other thing: sharks. They don't have them. Yeah, either. they're more all cartilage, yeah. right? Yeah. So they don't have those osteoliths going. Yeah. Amazing how they pulled this off. Uh, during uh, uh, development in the womb, the lenses uh, the of uh, 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 the eye, uh, the protein layers are laid down um, sequentially. Um, so you can actually look at the different layers of a, of a dead, uh, whale shark's eyeball and, and, you know, do, uh, carbon dating, radiocarbon dating of the different, the proteins in the different layers of the lens to, to get an age. Mm. That's insane. On top of that, they can actually see uh, with the radiocarbon dating from one of the layers, they can see where the 1950s are. Mm. They can use that as a marker because there was... A bombs going into the marine food web. It was time of the atomic bomb testing in the Pacific, and yeah. yeah. So even then, through the water, through the food chain, some mm. of that um, uh, carbon is it carbon fourteen? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, can be detected. There's a spike in the amount mm. of radioactive carbon in in one of the eye layers yeah. of this animal, just because so it's eating. So kind of convenient, but let's not drop any more. Well, yeah, no, kind of convenient. It gives us a so nice marker in the yeah, eyeball. Yeah, we don't want. That's enough. Yeah, we don't need to put yeah. any more markers yeah. in, like radioactive. Yeah. Yeah, we've got the one the marker. We yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're good. Yeah. So it's like a 1960s, you know, timestamp that's yeah. gone in through the food web. But just that's phenomenal. Incredible. Yeah. First that's of all, that you could detect that through the food web, but also to use that method to date. It's really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. Like, just, just to show, yeah. like, and, and again, look, they, they, it's not like they were murdering these sharks. These were bycatch. These were accidental right, bycatch yeah. from uh, yeah, from yeah. trawling. So they 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 had these samples on hand. Mm. It's not like they went out and speared them like Ahab. <laughs> And interestingly, they they only get to breeding age at 150 years old. Yeah, that's right. So, so look, it's very important for conservation with these guys. Yeah, as well, yeah. Looking at bycatch yeah. rates and and what's actually happening with the populations. I didn't look into their reproductive rate either. How many how many they have? Yeah, I, I imagine not many. Yeah, being a so. big slow breeder, I imagine Did they're it probably take a long time. Is, is, is it case yeah. selected or asked? I, I always forget the term. Um, it's an ecological term, anyway. Um, yeah, let's say, yeah, case selected are things which um, have a, a slower lifestyle and are usually in, in more resource poor areas in general. Although it can go either way, depending on yeah. your lifestyle. But um, uh, case selected animals will have fewer larger offspring less frequently and breed later, yeah. whereas our selected offspring are rabbits. Yeah, and they breed. So the way, the way I remember that, the way I remember, <laughs> um, you've got your carrying capacity, which is often signed as a capital K. Yes. So K, K carrying capacity. Of K, course. Yes. Yeah, uh, carrying capacity. Uh, um, basically, K adaptive species generally live at or <laughs> at or slightly below carrying yeah. capacity. Yeah. And very few fluctuations yeah. in their population. Whereas your R, oh, is that really I just think uh, rapid. Yeah. yeah. So you think you get a mice a mouse plague? Yeah. That's because those resources such as rain or yeah. food mm. suddenly went up. 
and they need to take advantage of it yeah. before it disappears. So they Absolutely. breed like crazy, yeah. and they have a massive spike, and it falls just as quickly. Yeah, wow. Whereas the K species, yeah, generally... I think like, uh, that's, that, that also might be here because of how... Um, I mean, that is how they will um, reproduce, but in certain areas there's enough, uh, uh, I guess, nutrients to keep that going. Whereas here yeah. in Australia, we do get those spike and falls. Yeah, right? sure. Because of how ephemeral our, our, our water and our, yeah. our resources are all season. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's about it. Thank you so much for coming. Um, man, um, I, uh, I guess that's about it. Um, just real quick, I would say, um, we're just going to do a couple of um, plugs and promos. And I guess just um, for me personally, I would say everybody, follow those land clearing developments in Queensland. Um, you can always follow them at edoqueensland.org.au forward slash news. The EDO are phenomenal. That's the Environmental Defenders Office. They're an amazing legal organisation um, uh, doing phenomenal environmental protection um, throughout Australia, I think. I think EDO Queensland obviously means that they're here, but um, I think EDO are in other states as well. I, I know that they're in New South Wales at least. They were, um, yeah, anyway, just uh, check out edoqueensland.org.au forward slash news. And uh, check up on those uh, land clearing developments. Uh, Lisa, what do you got for us? Um, I was just going to plug um, Barn. Absolutely, um, that's Brisbane, right. Yes, Brisbane Area Rescue Network. Phenomenal. Um, they're a fantastic group. In those guys are tremendous, Brisbane. man. I love those Yeah, things. they, they do, do a lot so of rescuing good. and rehabilitation yeah. of wildlife. So yeah, yeah. Um, get online if you want to help them out. Check them out. Brisbane that's Area Rescue Network. B-A-R-N.org.au, Brisbane so, Area Rescue Network for yes. wildlife rescue. They can always use volunteers. They can always Definitely. use more hands. If, if People to help a on the phone experience. lines. Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah, just Rescues. answering. And that's right. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Donations. Donations, yeah, they can use some donations. Everybody could use donations. Yeah, that's right. These look, these are people doing it for the heart of it. These are people who love it and have a whole lot of heart. And um, yeah, they do it because they they love these animals. A lot of them have day jobs. Not all of them are like us. That um, Mm. I I work professionally with snakes and um, and I and I rehab snakes. So I I have that Mm. luxury. A lot of other people work day to day and they still manage because of how Mm. much they love it to do wildlife conservation and rehab at home. Hats off to those people, man, and they need all the help that they can get. So, absolutely. Hamish, what do you yeah. got? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier uh, some species for conservation we need to bring into captivity because we can. I'm just going to make it very clear, whales are not one of those species. <laughs> That's not going to happen. We need to just protect them and yeah, the environment. Yeah, whales need protection. There is no, there is no other option. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately we don't have that luxury. Yeah. So, uh, wilderness.org. Uh, they got a campaign. Uh, oil and whales don't mix. Absolutely, bro. That's, uh, so that's in South Australia? Yeah. So, yeah, wilderness.org.au slash campaign slash oil and whales don't mix. So, obviously, uh, we're talking about the, um, the, the BP drilling sites there. Exactly. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. So, yeah, guys, wilderness.org. Again, uh, that's the Wilderness Society, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do some phenomenal work as well. You'll see those guys um, working it hard mm. out there. Doing the foot soldier thing for conservation, yeah. like gangsters. <laughs> and those guys are kind of, they're out there every day in the hot fucking sun, connecting, collecting donations, and you know hitting people up to get it's get not involved. An easy in. thing to do. No, Trust it's not. I mean, who, <laughs> who like wants to talk to like street sign up people, and then there's these people uh, who, who are doing it for like nothing. the conservation thing. Well, I mean, they get paid, but guys, that's about it. Just real quickly, uh, thanks so much to you guys. Um, next episode, we hope to, hope to, hope to have, uh, well, we hope to be talking about reptile medicine. 
and we'll see how well that goes. Reptile medicine and reptile surgery. Um, Hamish, thanks yes. for coming on, man. It's been a joy, and we'll hopefully we'll Loved have you on again you. soon. Yeah, absolutely. Hamish Nola from That Reptile Guy. Give a round of applause. Thank you. you have Thank an audience. You. Who cares? <laughs> um, Lisa, thank you. Always a pleasure. Knuckles, give me knuckles. Thanks for having me back again. Awesome. Anytime. Um, and guys, weird reproductive facts. We decided to add this in. Um, uh, we're going to do a weird reproductive fact at the, sh at the end of the show, every uh, every show. Um, and we're going to go with, um, can you guys guess, what is the longest sperm to body length ratio of any animal in the world? This one's in my head from undergrad. I don't even need to look at the notes. I, I can honestly say I've never even considered this, ever. <laughs> it's just never so, crossed my mind. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like a monster animal. It's a, fr it's a fruit fly. It's a yeah, free fly. Like, so yeah, free flies have this sense, uh, competitive yeah. reproductive thing where, um, you know, basically really their tails are, are, are keep growing longer because they they're, they're loaded up and weaponized with like spermicides to fight the other sperm from other males. Gotcha. Um, so the tails have just evolutionarily gotten longer and longer and longer because it's a it's a cartridge for your machine gun of anti sperm bullets. <laughs> and they now have a sperm that is sixteen times their own body length. Wow. Six sixteen times their own body length. So it's co it's completely coiled up. So it's still like not much, like in relative terms, like yeah. compared to you know body mass. Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's still much, tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny, tiny. But if you were to stretch, if you could uncoil it from all those, all those anti sperm proteins and stretch yeah. the fucking thing out, Jesus. That's, um, that's yeah. Impressive. So that's impressive. it's a thousand yeah. times the length of a human sperm. It's uh, it's these 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 fruit and flies I don't are even about. Know what the difference in size between a fruit fly and a human is? Like, that's <laughs> well, ridiculous. Uh, the, if you, uh, it's they get to about one point six. Uh, uh, well, anyway, it's five point eight centimeters long. It's a five point eight okay. centimeter long sperm to a, like a, a couple, couple of meter, millimeter long fruit fly. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. hard to believe. It's, so that's reproductive facts for the week, thank guys. You. Thank you so much again. <laughs> Um, and thanks everybody for joining in and listening. Join us at the table next time. Uh, my name is Yanni Tokola. This has been Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. Thank you so much. And Thank we're you. out. Woo Join us next time.